0: The peace that's instituted by the Antichrist is short-lived because Satan's aim is to come to steal and to kill and to destroy. I mean, can you imagine a world that is consumed by war where every corner of the planet is encompassed with pain and with suffering and with war?
1: Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogi. Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In the midst of a pandemic, and with racial tensions elevated, it is tempting to think that we may be in the tribulation period. Yet, what we are experiencing is merely birth pangs of that tribulation. Once the church is caught up, all hell will literally break loose on the earth, and what we've been seeing recently will be a picnic compared to what is to come. As we continue our study of the Revelation, we pick up in a message entitled, The Red Horse of Destruction, which is let loose when Jesus unseals the second seal of the seven-seal scroll that was introduced in chapter 5. Today, we're in Revelation 6, verses 3 and 4. But as we pick up, Pastor Brogy from 1 Thessalonians 5 addresses the destruction that will come suddenly and without warning.
0: When the second seal is open and the horse The man on the red horse is loosed. Things really get ugly. And by the way, remember, Antichrist comes first. He comes with a bow without any arrows. He comes as a man of peace. But the peace is short-lived, and things get ugly very, very fast. Here in First Thessalonians chapter 5, look, if you will, at verse 2. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. You remember the day of the Lord? That's an important phrase in the Bible. Whenever the word day in Hebrew or Greek is accompanied with a number next to it, it's referring to a literal, actual 24-hour day. No exceptions. So when you come into the Old Testament, for instance, there are over 465 times when the word yom, day, is accompanied with a number, and no one debates, oh, that's an actual 24-hour day but when we come to the opening chapters of Genesis and you have a number with the Hebrew word day, day one, day two, day three, not to mention the further defining phrase, evening and morning. Christians today say, well, that doesn't mean a 24-hour day. That must mean long periods of time. And they want the day of the Lord, to fit with modern-day science. And that's dangerous. God has the final word, not man. And so for nearly 1,900 years, all born-again Christians throughout church history said the world was made in six literal days. Why do we believe that? Not only because the Bible plainly says it, but God gave us divine commentary through Moses in Exodus 20. He said, in six days, God made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested. Therefore, you are to work six literal days And on the seventh day, you are to rest. So God makes an analogy. He describes through Moses that these are real days. But you see, the world wants you to think that we've been around for billions and billions of years and we got billions of billions of years to go. Why does the world want you to think that? Because if this thing has been going on forever, there's no real accountability. We're not going to meet the living God where we will have to give an account. God is not going to come back anytime soon. He's not going to intervene in human history because he hasn't intervened in billions of years, not to mention some say he didn't even create the world. And then foolish Christians say God used the process of evolution to create the world, which goes against everything in Scripture because you have death before the creation. Yeah, I mean, excuse me, you have death before sin enters into the world. God is very clear. Now, the term the day of the Lord, no number, is like the phrase in English, what we call the day of your youth. You weren't a youth for 24 hours. It was a period of time. And the day of the Lord is used in the Old Testament to describe a brilliantly beautiful time or an absolutely horrible time, depending which prophet you're reading. Because the day of the Lord in the Old Testament mimics a biblical day. I have an Orthodox friend who never calls me between Friday evening and Saturday evening. He lives in Jerusalem. Why? Because that's their Sabbath. And he can't call me on their Sabbath because you shouldn't use the phone on the Sabbath. And Jewish people, especially the Orthodox, have a lot of rules. If you go to Israel, you don't want to, on a Sabbath day, get stuck on a Sabbath elevator. I found myself on the 20th floor, and it stopped. I got on the Sabbath elevator, and every single floor it stopped. Why? Because they don't want you to push the button, because to push the button is work, all right? So the day of the Lord, it starts in the evening, and it goes to evening. The day of the Lord starts in darkness. It gets progressively dark in the tribulation. But then there is a bright spot when Jesus comes back. And the S-O-N is compared to the S-U-N. And there's a thousand years, so to speak, of sunshine. And then we will see at the end of the millennium, it will get dark all over again. And so the day of the Lord refers to this long period of time, beginning with the rapture, going all the way through the millennial reign of Christ. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying, look at verse 3, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Just before this cataclysmic, time begins. It's described in Revelation 6. Everyone is going to say, the world is wonderful. Peace and safety. Our man on the white horse, who is the Antichrist, has brought us this global government. And there are so many people who are pushing for a one world government today. He has solved all of our problems. When they are saying peace and safety, then suddenly destruction, will come upon them like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Now, I believe the nations of the world, whether they know it or not, at least are preparing for this coming day, for this new world order. And for a few short moments, they will feel like they've achieved it. But then suddenly, it's emphatic in the original. When you want to emphasize something in Greek, you change the word order. So it's out of the normal order. It's put at the front of the sentence. Suddenly, in a split second, everything's going to change like a thief in the night. If someone breaks into your home tonight, I promise they will not write you a letter ahead of time letting you know they are going to come. Jesus is going to come back someday like a thief. And just like a thief that will take something, Jesus is going to come back and take something. Who's he going to take? Yeah, moi, us, those of us that know him as Lord. And suddenly millions of Christians will be gone across the planet. One minute, some Christian will be in a hospital bed suffering. The next moment, the sheets will be empty. One minute, a Christian will be piloting an airplane. The next moment, it's going down. One moment, a Christian is driving his car. The next moment, it's suddenly gone. One moment, a Christian is grieving at the graveside over a loved one. The next moment, the person in the casket comes out, and those of us who are alive will be caught up together in the air. And in churches, maybe even some churches like this, people will come on a Sunday morning, and instead of having hundreds and hundreds of people, you might come and there's 10 people. Say, Where is everybody? Is this Sunday? Who's on first? What's going on? Where is everybody? Where'd Nat go? Where did Jerry go? Where did Sally go? Where did Fred go? Where did the pastor go? You might come up to Pastor Ed and say, Pastor Ed, where's the pastor? Suddenly, like a thief in the night, millions will be gone. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly. Not upon us, upon them suddenly. Why? Because it's verse 9, we'll say later in the chapter, if you have it open and you should turn to the text when I ask you to, you'll get a lot more out of it. Because we're not destined for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. And this is the time frame called the wrath of the lamb in 616. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. Now, the word suddenly, again, is emphasized in the Greek because in the pregnancy of an expectant mother, suddenly the labor begins. I was supposed to baptize a brother, new believer in this service, and uh, his wife's pregnant, and when we met recently, I said, well, we'll schedule it for this Sunday. He said, I don't know if we'll be here. Well, suddenly this morning, she went into labor, and so we didn't baptize him today. Well, suddenly... The labor begins, and they shall not escape. And again, as we read in verse 16, there will be people who will try to escape, who will say, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb but they will not be able to hide from God. Suddenly, like in the middle of the night, a burglar will come, and suddenly, like in the pregnancy of an expectant mother, the water will break and labor will begin. Now, both are sudden, but they are different similes. The burglar is unexpected, while once pregnancy has begun, labor is very much expected. So when you put the two metaphors together, the day of the Lord, which will commence with the rapture of the church, and will begin to unfold in its horror in Revelation 6, will come suddenly like a burglar in the night when God comes and takes his people. And then suddenly as the wrath unfolds, just like you cannot reverse labor, once it starts, it begins and it gets more and more and more intense, there will be no escape. All right? So, There's the red horse of destruction. First, he comes and the peace is broken. Secondly, the planet is brutalized. The planet is brutalized. The peace that's instituted by the Antichrist is short-lived because Satan's aim is to come to steal and to kill and to destroy. I mean, can you imagine a world that is consumed by war where every corner of the planet is encompassed with pain and with suffering and with war? We'll study it later, I think, in the Revelation, Ezekiel 30 and 39. God gives us a snippet of what's going on during that time. Many of the nations like Iran and other countries like Russia and some other Muslim countries are specifically named in the scripture that are going to come against Israel. And God highlights especially that particular war because of its ramifications on the people of Israel. But we read in verse 4, and another, a red horse went out And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. Remember, first living creature, first... Cherubim says come, white horse comes. Second living creature says come, second horse comes, red horse comes. And the word for red is not accidental. There's another word for red in Greek. This particular word for red is a word that's used of warning. It's used of bloodshed. He comes on a red horse, just like the red dragon, same word used there, is ferocious and brutal and vicious. This man comes on his fiery red horse with great brutality. And he comes the the says. Says with a sword. And the word for sword was the word that was used by the Romans who could authoritatively execute people. But not just any sword. The Bible modifies this as having a great sword. Maybe it's some weapon of mass destruction. But the Bible is clear that what is going to happen in this time frame is not limited to Israel, but he is going to take peace from the whole world. It's granted to him to take peace. From the Earth, that men would slay one another. This is a world war on the magnitude that people have never seen. In this writer, the Bible says, was permitted to take peace from the world. We've already underscored with the white horse, it was granted to him. In other words, what takes place takes place under the sovereign hand of God Almighty. While this man has freedom, while this man has his horse that goes across the planet, his horse is on a leash, and it's under the hand of a sovereign God. They will say, fall on us and hide us from the presence of the Lamb who sits on the throne, and while He may execute judgment and war, He is within offense, He is within certain boundaries during this day of wrath that is going to come. Now think about this. This is different from any other time in human history. Jesus said there's never been a time like it. There'll never be a time like it again. World War I was a horrible war. They say 18 million people died in the First World War. And the Second World War, we don't have an exact number, but it's somewhere between 60 and 80 million people who died. Not those who were injured, but who actually died. But as we're going to see, those are very, very small numbers compared to what is going to happen during this time of tribulation. And again, it will be a great sword, and no one knows for sure how that will unfold. Nine nations currently possess nuclear weapons, and our government tells us that 24 third world nations are trying to become nuclearized nations. Now, Jesus warned us in the Olivet Discourse that there will be wars and rumors of wars. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 24 that there will be birth pangs that will progressively get worse, that will go all the way until the Battle of Armageddon. Now, right now, the world is armed to the hilt. We have nations that we wish didn't have nuclear capacities, but they do. One famous general recently said, we have enough stockpiles of military weaponry to kill everyone on the planet 150 times over. Imagine that 150 times over. Of course, once would be enough, I think. But anyway, but I can tell you right now, the only thing that keeps the world from exercising this control is God, the Holy Spirit, who's the restrainer. He is holding back, but one of these days, the church is going to be removed, and the Holy Spirit's presence in the church will be lost, the light will be gone, and all hell will break loose. I will never forget watching the day after with my father in our living room. It was before my senior year in college, New York City at 9.30 in the evening had a total blackout. Some of you remember that. And uh, they said, I went back and reviewed this week, over 1,600 stores were looted, 1,037 fires were set, and $300 million of damage took place in one night. Nobody was actually killed, but thousands and thousands of people were hurt. And I don't know, maybe people thought, well, they could do it in the dark, the lights were out, no one would see. But God sees. The psalmist said, if I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. It's really a picture of what people will do in the darkness. Paul says people sin often in the darkness. Somehow they think they can escape the judgment of God or the sight of God Almighty, but they cannot. But what took place was just a smidgen just a foretaste of what is going to take place when the red horseman comes and peace is removed from the world. When the light of the world is gone, when the salt of the earth that prevents decay from happening, then nation, as Jesus said, will rise against nation. The word nation is the word that we get our word ethnicity from. And kingdom will go against kingdom. That speaks of geopolitical boundaries. In other words, there's going to be race wars, ethnic wars, and world wars between nations across the planet. What took place in World War I and World War II, though they encompassed many nations, it was just a fraction of the nations of the world. And this coming day, every nation in the world is going to be engaged in war, and it will be a different time. There won't be any mothers praying for their children before they go off to battle. No fathers interceding for their son. No chaplains in the foxholes trying to introduce people to Jesus because the church will be gone. And during this time, as we'll see, as fast as people are converted, they're literally butchered and martyred for their faith. Now, Revelation is a book of prophecy. It is a book describing events that are yet to happen. And when the red horseman comes, he will literally take peace from the earth. It's never happened to this extent. You could take the French Revolution, the Civil War, World War I, World War II, Korean War, every conflict you could think of and put them all together. And they won't even begin to compare to what is in front of man. My friends, it will be a world without any hope. I mean, can you imagine what it will be like? And of course, we will read next week of the famines that will come. And famines always follow war. And so Jesus, describing this time, said, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. The shrieks and the moans and the groans of people will be so horrible when this ghastly, gruesome, awful man comes on his red horse. You don't want to be here. So how are we going to apply this today? Let me suggest three applications as we close. Number one, if you are a Christian, are you seeking to bring people to Christ? Are you seeking to bring people to Christ? Really, the four horsemen is just a reminder of another kind of wrath. This is God's wrath through the Lamb during the tribulation period. But this wrath will eventually change into eternal wrath. And when we study the eternal wrath that is yet to come, it's even worse than anything we're going to read in the Revelation. Now, men don't have to go to hell. God's heart is that none should perish, that all should come to repentance. But if men die and go to hell, it will be because they have refused God's provision. But God shares His provision through the church. But as we've seen, the church at the end of time, though the seven churches don't display seven time frames, the final church that's mentioned in Revelation 3, the church of Laodicea, nonetheless pictures the church at the end of time because other scriptures tell us that, that the church at the end of the age will be a lukewarm, preoccupied church. That's the body of Christ in our day. People spend more time on their Facebook page and on social media than they do in their Bibles. They spend more time communicating their latest picture than they do communicating the gospel. And so I would just say to you, do you have loved ones and friends and family who could be left behind for this? You say it won't happen in our day. How do you know that? God is setting the stage. He could have come in 125 A.D. or 200 A.D., but the amazing thing is all of the prophecy that he is fulfilling in our day for the second coming that lets you know the rapture is that much closer. Do you care about those people? Of course you do, but is your heart captured by anything else such that you're really not fervently trying to reach out to them? Look, we've got some opportunities coming up in the next six weeks. We have Reformation Sunday, the last Sunday in... In October, which that night we'll have the fall festival, and a week later we'll have friend day. Some of you on friend day used to try to bring a friend. It's a day when I just simply preach the gospel. Nothing too heavy in terms of a text like this. Just a simple presentation of the gospel. I mean, if there's a good day to bring a lost friend, relative, mother, brother, sister, neighbor, it's that day. We've got the men's wildlife supper. I mean, we've got some opportunities that God has given us. The question is, does my heart care? Does my heart reach out? We printed a couple thousand of those cards, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. How many of us have passed out one? I mean, you talk about a a topic of interest even amongst the unchurch. It's what we're doing right now. So ask yourself, am I seeking to bring people to Christ? Secondly, if you are a Christian, are you ready to meet the Lord? I hope you understand that there's a difference between being ready to go to heaven and ready to meet the Lord. Anyone who's truly, genuinely received Jesus as their Lord and Savior is ready to go to heaven. But not everyone is ready to meet the Lord. John, speaking to born ones, little children, says this in 1 John 2.28, And now little children abide in him. That means like walk with the Lord so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Some Christians, when Jesus shows up, are going to be embarrassed. And they're going to say, how foolish I was, how temporal was my investment in this life. Never really sought even to invite someone to Community Bible Church, much less take them through the plan of salvation. Never really engaged in getting to know the people of the church. Going to an ABF, that's a million miles from my brain because I just want to get here, do my time, and leave because that's what we're supposed to do as Christians. And we'll meet the Lord in shame, God's people. And so a few verses later, he will say, beloved, now we are children of God. He just called us that little ones. We are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him just as he is, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself as he's pure. See, that's what a study of Revelation should do to you. It should cause the return of Jesus from heaven to begin to reverberate in your soul throughout the day. Why? Because it has an effect where you become pure as he is pure. If you knew he was coming this afternoon at three o'clock, is there someone you'd pick up the phone and say, hey, Joe, I'm really sorry. Will you forgive me? And I owed you that hundred dollars that I I ripped you off on. Here's your hundred bucks. Or is there some neighbor, some friend that you'd go and try to win to Jesus? See, that's what the reality of Jesus coming back again does to the believer, to the child of God who's walking with him. So it's entirely possible that you're ready to go to heaven but really not ready to meet the Lord. And it doesn't have to continue. Today can be the first day of the rest of your life. And then finally, basically, are you ready to go to heaven? Because if you're not saved, if you don't have the assurance that if you had a heart attack in that chair. You know, my wife and I were in a gas station yesterday. I mean, in a gas station, just pulling away from a pump, and a lady hit us at 20 miles an hour. <laughs> I mean, she hit that Honda so hard, she pushed that front wheel right up into the engine compartment. Had she hit maybe a foot late, uh, back behind the, the side door, she hit us on the, my side. I don't think I'd be here this morning. I already have a stiff neck. And I'm not saying that because I'm suing. I don't sue people. I suppose I could have worn a, a neck brace to church and shown some lawyer. <laughs> but life is so fragile. It's but a vapor that appears for a moment and then it's gone. Are you ready to meet the living God? Do you know that you know that you know that heaven is your home? Because if Jesus comes this afternoon, it will be forever too late for you. And you'll never get it right during the tribulation period. Today can be your day of salvation, but you must come to the only one who can save you. And his name is Yeshua, Jesus Christ. Holy Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what we read today. You gave us this portion of scripture, not to make us smarter, but to make us more like your son. I pray today, Father, for someone who's here who really doesn't have the assurance, someone who's listening online, maybe even in another country of the world, but they don't know that they know that they know that if this were their last day on earth, that heaven is their home. Father, help them to see that there's nothing they can do to merit or contribute to salvation that Jesus paid it all with his own precious blood there on Golgotha. Your word says the gift of God is eternal life, that we're saved by grace through faith, not by good deeds, so no one can boast. Help them to see, Father, that salvation is not something you earn, but a gift you humbly receive. And that then when they receive you, you begin to change them. Help someone in simple faith, knowing that you cannot lie, knowing that you keep all your promises, that when you said whoever would call upon the name of Jesus, you meant that. Help someone to say in simple faith, Jesus save me by your death and resurrection. Now, Father, you know the rest of us, and none of us are 100% consistent, but we want to be. We don't want to shrink in shame when Jesus comes back. Help us to do some personal inventory today. Our hearts would be clean and right with you. We ask it in the mighty name of Jesus,
1: amen. To listen again to today's study, The Red Horse of Destruction, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV15. Tomorrow we break the third seal and are introduced to the Black Horse of Destitution. Join us then as we continue our study of the Revelation and search the Scriptures.